Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. The Blue Wall of Silence is an informal code among police officers not to report on a fellow cop's misconduct or crimes. Any officers who refuse to lie to protect a corrupt cop may be threatened and ostracized by their fellow police officers. This glorified corruption goes back as far as we can tell to at least the 1800s. In Los Angeles, California, that blue code allowed a murder to escape justice for 23 years. On the morning of February 24, 1986, 29-year-old Sherry Rasmussen lounged in bed much longer than she usually did on a work day. Her husband of only three months, John Rutten, gave her a confused look as he hurried around getting ready to head out to his own job as a mechanical engineer. As director of nursing for a big hospital, she had a lot of responsibilities. That day, she was scheduled to supervise a human resources class, and she really didn't want to. She confessed to John that she might call in sick in order to avoid the training altogether. He told her she should just get it over with and chuckled as he kissed her goodbye and left for work at 7.20 a.m. At 9.45 that morning, a neighbor who also lived in the same gated Van Nuys neighborhood noticed that the garage door was open with no cars inside, but figured the couple had just forgotten to close it when they left that morning. John tried calling Sherry at the house around 10, but there was no answer and the answering machine wasn't turned on. He figured maybe she had decided to go into work after all, so he called her secretary, but was told Sherry hadn't been in. John tried to call home three or four times more, but never got an answer. It was odd that the answering machine wasn't on, but Sherry sometimes forgot, so he wasn't overly worried about it. On his way home that evening, he ran some errands, stopping by the dry cleaners to pick up some clothes and at the UPS store. When he pulled up to the garage, he was surprised to see the door drawn up and Sherry's BMW gone. When he got out of the car, he noticed there were some shards of broken glass on the pavement at the garage entrance. John's first thought was that she must have hit something while backing out. It wouldn't be the first time. But when he rounded the corner, he saw the front door was ajar and he knew something was wrong. I mean, my husband would have automatically assumed I also hit something while backing out of the garage, so I don't blame him for that being his first thought. But the door being open and me not being home is a big red flag. (laughs) Yeah, my husband would assume the same, especially with my track record. (laughs) I think I'd be a little more worried about not being able to get a hold of her all day, though, if I was him. Yeah, after the third unanswered text message, my husband grows worried and calls. Four unanswered calls is very concerning in a marriage. Absolutely. Well, he found Sherry dead on the floor of the living room. She was laying on her back on the brown rug. Her face was swollen, beaten, and bloody. She was barefoot, still in pajamas and a bathrobe. John put his fingers to her wrist to feel for a pulse. Her skin was ice cold. In shock, John hesitated, unable to wrap his head around what he was seeing. Finally, he realized that he needed to call 911. A neighbor came by to return Sherry's purse, which had been found in his yard by his gardener around noon that day. John had just found Sherry's body and looked shocked and ghostly white. He just kept repeating, she's dead, she's dead. Inside, police found signs of a struggle. A porcelain vase had apparently been broken over Sherry's head, a bloody handprint next to the alarm's panic button, and a toppled credenza. 
It also appeared that someone at least attempted to bind Sherry's hands at one point, but failed. It was a brutal crime scene. Sherry had been beaten badly. Her face was unrecognizable. Blood was all over the carpet and the walls. She had several defensive wounds and a bruise on her face that looked to have been inflicted by the muzzle of a gun. The investigating criminalist also observed a bite mark on her arm and took a swab from it. In the end, the killer had picked up a nearby quilted blanket and fired through it to muffle the sound. She was shot three times at close range. LAPD detectives investigating the case quickly concluded that Sherry had interrupted a burglary in process and was killed for it. Given her attire, she clearly was not expecting visitors. There had been a string of home invasions in the area at the time. A tossed living room, some electronics stacked by the stairs, and a missing BMW was evidence enough for the lead detective, Lyle Mayer, to dismiss Sherry's murder as a botched robbery. Although a maid in a neighboring unit heard screaming and fighting earlier in the day, but she didn't hear any gunshots. She thought it had just been a heated domestic dispute and didn't call police. I would never suggest you get in the middle of a domestic violence situation, as it can be dangerous for you as much as the victim. But it never hurts to at least call the police, even if you're an anonymous caller. It could save someone's life and prevent further harm. Also, it's never a good idea to take someone's car during a crime. That's like the easiest way to get caught. (laughs) I agree that reporting a domestic disturbance is usually a good idea. As for the car, are you giving crime advice again, Sham? (laughs) Of course not, Steph. I definitely meant take the car. Also, while you're at it, drive it around for a couple hours. You know, you don't want to waste any time. (laughs) Okay, okay. What doesn't make sense with the detective's theory, though, was the only thing stolen were Sherry's BMW, which was a gift from her husband, and the couple's marriage license. The stolen BMW was then found a week later, unlocked with the keys in the ignition in a rough neighborhood. Investigators found several fingerprints in it, a spot of blood, and a strand of brown hair. Sherry was blonde. While the scene at the house certainly looked like a robbery had been in progress, Sherry's jewelry box had been in plain sight and was left completely untouched. Why would a thief steal a marriage certificate and leave the expensive jewelry behind? There were so many pieces of evidence that went against the detective's initial theory. Regardless, the police remained focused on the possibility of burglary, especially when one was reported a couple weeks later in the same neighborhood. It was reported that one of the two suspects had been carrying a gun, possibly a 38 caliber, like the one that had fired the three bullets into Sherry. Detective Mayer publicly insisted that the suspects were two men, most likely illegal immigrants, and had a sketch drawn up of two Hispanic-looking men. He did look at John as a suspect at first, but ruled him out after talking to him at length. There was no motive, no insurance, no evident trouble in their relationship. John's pain was unmistakably genuine. The assumed robbers were never identified, and after barely interviewing a few neighbors and never reaching out to Sherry's close friends, the case went cold. It's so easy for people to assume that crimes are related because they happen in close proximity, and most of the times they are, but it can also throw a case way off. It sounds like Detective Mayer had some serious biases already firmly in place. He had no evidence that the intruders were male, illegal immigrants, or Hispanic. He made some big unfounded assumptions. 
It's like he didn't even try. But I want to know more about the victim here. What's Sherry's background and why would anyone try to come after her? So Sherry was very close to her family and they weren't about to let this go. Sherry was born February 7, 1957 in Walla Walla, Washington to Nels and Loretta Rasmussen. Sherry was one of three girls born to the couple and the sisters were always best friends. Sherry was beautiful, brilliant, confident, and ambitious. She graduated early and started at Loma Linda University at age 16. Sherry met John Rutten in the summer of 1984 and immediately fell for the dark, handsome, and charming man. Both were lean, athletic runners, and both had big dreams for their careers. He was a recent graduate of UCLA, and Sherry, just two years older than John, was already the director of nursing at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center at only 27 years old. She was the kind of person John wanted to be, and she fell just as hard for him. It was as though everything in their lives just disappeared the moment they met. Old relationships, future plans. They met and they were together, just like that. Not surprisingly, it didn't take long for them to get engaged. Sherry's parents were enormously proud of their talented daughter, but like many parents, were less than thrilled about her choice of a husband. Nels considered John a pleasant enough guy, but felt he was unimpressive and weak. He had a long list of reasons not to like John. Sherry was a daddy's girl, and he was often her shoulder to cry on. Sherry and John were clearly crazy about each other, but John came with one significant complication. For the past five years before meeting Sherry, John had an on-again, off-again friend with benefits named Stephanie Lazarus. They met at UCLA, where they lived in the same building while Stephanie majored in political science and John majored in mechanical engineering. They would fool around from time to time, and Stephanie would steal John's clothes while he showered and take photographs of him naked while he slept. John never considered the relationship as anything more than sex, but Stephanie thought it was much more than that. If you're going to do the whole friendship with benefits thing, make sure you're both on the same page because it's not for everybody. Yeah, it needs to be a clear conversation so both people know that's all it is. Otherwise, you'll just end up leading one person on and giving them false hope, which leads to chaos. One. Exactly. At one point, Stephanie threw John a surprise party on his 25th birthday, completely unaware that he had been dating other women or that he had developed a serious relationship with Sherry by then. When he showed up to his surprise party with Sherry and she learned about the relationship, Stephanie was devastated. In 1985, when she found out they were engaged, she wrote a desperate letter to John's mother that wrote, I'm truly in love with John, and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't end the way that it did, and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision. During their engagement, Stephanie would show up unannounced, which made Sherry very uncomfortable. At one point, Stephanie brought her skis to the condo John and Sherry shared and asked him to wax them for her. And despite Sherry's objections, he complied. After Stephanie left, Sherry asked if their relationship was really over. John convinced her the two were just friends. A few days later, Stephanie, a cop, returned to pick up the skis in uniform and armed after she knew John had left for work. Sherry made it clear she wasn't welcome there. And then shortly before the wedding day, Stephanie visited John at his condo while Sherry was out of town. 
begging him not to marry Sherry. John and Stephanie had sex that night. John later claiming it was to give her closure. Two weeks later, John and Sherry were married as planned. Oh, hell no. John's trash. He straight up cheated on her, so let's just call it what it is. Uh, yeah. He also was totally leading Stephanie on. First in college when he wasn't serious about her, but she didn't know that. And again, having sex with her while he's engaged, making her think there's still hope. Stephanie's probably thinking, if he really loves her, why does he keep coming back to me? It's a good question. Even after they were married, Stephanie didn't go away. Sherry cried on the phone, telling her father about it many times. She said she wished John would just step in and tell this woman to leave them alone. All he would do was assure her that there was nothing going on between him and Stephanie, and the best thing was just to ignore her and eventually she would go away. But she didn't go away. Things only got worse. Sherry confided in multiple people that Stephanie would show up everywhere they went. The gym, the grocery store, she would even wear a hoodie and follow Sherry on the street. Then there was the visit the woman made to Sherry's office at the hospital. Sherry said the woman had burst into her office right past the secretary outside her door. This time, Stephanie was dressed in tight short shorts and a tube top, an outfit that showed off her sexuality and athleticism. She screamed at Sherry that if she couldn't have John, no one would, and that when their marriage ended, she would be there to pick up the pieces. Then she stormed out. That's big stalker behavior. Like, clearly ignoring her isn't doing anything, and John has to be enjoying this because ain't no way in hell a man dedicated to his wife would allow her to be attacked like that on multiple occasions. I'm not even totally convinced that they only had sex that one time. It sounds to me like he let her keep coming around because he was keeping her on the side and was trying to keep both of them happy. Yeah, I'm not convinced they ever stopped seeing each other romantically, but please tell me this came up in the investigation. Well, first of all, Nels didn't find out about Sherry's death until the next day when John's dad called him with the heartbreaking news. Nels wanted to know why, if his daughter had been killed the day before, he was just being informed of it now. He wanted to know why John hadn't called him. He asked to speak directly to John. He wanted answers. John's dad refused to put his grieving son on the phone. Nels sat up the rest of that night, his mind racing dealing with his shock and pain by writing down everything he knew about the situation. The next morning, he called the lead detective with his theory. He told Detective Mayer that an ex-girlfriend of John's had been stalking Sherry. He didn't know her name, but he knew she was a lady cop with dark hair. He begged the detective to ask John for her name and look into her. It was clear that Detective Mayer liked John and had come to trust him, he told John about Nell's accusations, but when John dismissed it out of hand, the notion that his ex-girlfriend might have done this, Mayer was more inclined to believe him than Nell's, the angry, grieving father-in-law who didn't seem to like his son-in-law that much. After that, John wouldn't talk about Sherry's murder with her family. Okay, my parents would lose their minds too if they found out that I got murdered a day later. And I don't like John either, so I can definitely see why Sherry's father was not a fan. Also, why isn't he considering his ex a suspect? Why is he protecting her from even being a person of interest? Right? Everyone should be considered a suspect until cleared. I don't get why the detective is just taking John's word for it. Like, do your job and look into people connected to the victim. 
I'd lose all trust in the PD if I were Sherry's family, too. Oh, yeah, me too. To make it worse, detectives at the Van Nuys office were often unhelpful when Sherry's family called, hanging up on them or putting them on hold for hours. A year after the murder, the frustrated family took action into their own hands. They put up a $10,000 reward and held a press conference calling for more action. Nels wrote to Daryl Gates, then chief of LAPD, about the possibility that Stephanie Lazarus might have been involved. Detective Mayer yet again blew him off and told him, and I quote, he watched too much television. Nels refused to let it go. Later working with the short-lived television series Murder One on a segment inspired by the case. Three years after Sherry's death in 1989, John had plans to reunite with Stephanie on a romantic scuba trip to Hawaii. Before he flew to meet her there, he called Detective Mayer to make sure no evidence had ever linked Stephanie to Sherry's murder. It's interesting that the possibility which he had so strongly rejected still remained in the back of his mind. Detective Mayer assured him that there was no suspicions about Stephanie whatsoever. John and Stephanie dated for a short time and then each moved on and married someone else. Oddly enough, notes about that conversation are not in the case file. In fact, the only note mentioning Stephanie Lazarus at all is that John confirmed she was an old girlfriend. Nothing about Nell's suspicions or her confrontation at the hospital. Nothing at all. Wow, it's almost as if John knew she was a suspect all along and for whatever reason decided to protect her. And even with the suspicion that she murdered his wife, he still gets back together with her. Literal trash. So they just get to live happily ever <laughs> after while Sherry's case gets swept under the rug? For 18 years, Sherry's file and what was left of the evidence from the scene of her murder sat in storage. Mayer eventually retired. And the new detective assigned to the case told Nels that he was unable to follow up on Mayer's notes and did not think that any new leads would emerge. In 1993, after the usage of DNA technology to catch criminals popularized, Nels urged them to test the evidence from Sherry's crime scene. There was blood and hair samples, and there was that swab taken from the bite mark on Sherry's arm. He was told that the department had a limited budget and could not afford to run such tests. So Nels offered to pay for the tests himself. He even had a lab willing to do the work. He says he was told that the DNA would do them no good without a suspect, which may be true, but Nels insisted he did have a suspect. The new detective firmly told Nels that they would not be looking into Stephanie Lazarus because there was nothing to find. There may have been another reason Nels wasn't heard. There appears to have been a degree of institutional bias at work that is shocking and perhaps even criminal. The case record suggests that one or more persons during the initial investigation and continuing through the next 10 years were not just disinclined to consider that one of their own had murdered Sherry, but actively conspired to hide evidence that might have proved it. For one thing, all of the records in the file pertaining to Nell's suspicions about the lady cop and even the interview with John the day after the murder where he discussed Stephanie with Detective Mayer were missing. There are audio recordings and notes from every other interview in those first few days, which was standard operating procedure, but there are none of the ones where Stephanie was specifically mentioned. 
These are conversations remembered by both Nels and John, who are interviewed independently without knowledge of what the other had said. And this suspicious behavior continued into the years that followed. Oh, come on. A cop covering for another cop is simply unheard of. I mean, come on. They're protectors of the law. There's no way they would break that code even for each other. (laughs) Okay. We all know it happens, but it's truly disgusting to see how blatantly they go about it. It's obvious evidence tampering. They didn't even try to be subtle. Was there any other evidence that came up? Well, on October 11th, 1993, more than seven years after the murder, but only days after Nels had requested a DNA test, a detective named Phil Morant visited the L.A. County Coroner's Office. He sang out all of the forensic samples there that might have contained a suspect's DNA. It's not unusual for a detective to remove evidence to deliver it for testing to a lab, but in this case, all of the evidence signed out disappeared. Detective Morant would later tell the department investigators that he had no memory of signing out the samples at all. What no one realized at the time was that the bite mark saliva sample had been wedged down in the side of the freezer and didn't get taken like the rest of the evidence. In the meantime, Stephanie continued working with the LAPD. She went on to start her own private investigation firm, Unique Investigations. In 1993, after stints at the department's Drug Abuse Resistance Education and Internal Affairs Division, she was promoted to detective. Three years later, she married a fellow officer and together they adopted a little girl. Eventually, she worked her way up to the Cushy Fine Arts Division. One of only two detectives who specialized in working art theft cases, she gained some local media attention when she and her partner had recovered a statue stolen from Carthay Circle. She was hailed by the department as a hero. Off-duty, she had been active in the Los Angeles Women's Police Officers Association and organized child care for families of officers. It seemed no one was willing to suspect her of anything. Sham will tell us how this case finally breaks wide open after this short break. By 2001, crime in Los Angeles had declined enough from its earliest levels that detectives began looking into cold cases. L.A. Police Officer Chief Bernard C. Parks created the Cold Case Homicide Unit to begin systematically combing through unsolved murder files for DNA evidence. Three years later, Jennifer Francis, a criminalist with that unit, pulled Sherry's case and began sorting through what was there. Sherry's file perplexed Jennifer. The crime report stated that a swab had been taken from the bite mark on Sherry's arm, but it was not listed in evidence and was not among the forensic samples that had been signed out in 1993. Jennifer knew well the steps in the evidence chain. Evidence recovered from the victim's body would be held for a time in the coroner's freezer while the case was still active and at some point would be gathered up and stored under the file number. So they searched the freezers by hand. The swab was found in a manila envelope that had absorbed moisture from the freezer walls, and over time, the corner of the envelope with the case number on it had worn away. It still had Rasmutin written on the front, but whoever gathered up the forensic evidence in 1986 had avoided the extra effort and just left it in the freezer, where it sat for 18 years. Jennifer got the lab test results back in late January of 2005. She ran the DNA signature through CODIS, the National Law Enforcement Database, and there were no hits. But the results showed something curious. The bite mark on Sherry's arm had been made by a woman. 
Jennifer took this result back to the cold case detectives, pointing out that if Sherry had been killed by a woman, it upended the mayor's theory. She knew nothing about Nell's suspicions, nor did the cold case detectives. Still, if the murderer was a woman, the entire case should be reinvestigated. The detectives did not agree. They just figured one of the two burglars had to be female. The DNA results were added to the case file and it went back into storage. That is seriously ridiculous. They were so lazy, they couldn't be bothered that the DNA went against the current theory. They were just like, oh well. They knew there were burglaries in that area and took full advantage of it being done with this case. It's just plain lazy. Did anyone ever do their job regarding Sherry's case? Well, in 2009, two cold case detectives, Jim Nadel and Pete Barba, reviewed Sherry's files and found it interesting enough to be worth pursuing. Jim and Pete looked at the case as a murder, with a burglary stage to throw the police off the trail. Many aspects of the crime were improbable for a break-in, especially one committed in daylight. The condo was in the middle of a gated complex, surrounded by other units, where burglars could have easily been observed. The front door had an alarm system and had not been forced open, which might have been if the burglars had not expected anyone to be at home. Inside, a key aspect of the crime scene was also consistent with the burglary theory. At the top of the stairs was a stack of stereo equipment and a VCR. If, as the evidence suggested, the struggle between Sherry and her attacker had started upstairs and moved downstairs, that stack would have been slightly knocked over and scattered as well. It made more sense to assume that it had been stacked afterwards, when an actual burglar would have fled the scene immediately after shooting someone. The forensics evidence reinforced this theory as well. On a record player at the top of the stack was a thumb-shaped bloodstain. It had no fingerprint, suggesting whoever left it was wearing gloves. The blood was sherry, suggesting the equipment had been stacked after she was killed. It had clearly been left behind to make the crime look like something that it wasn't. Add in the DNA test pointed to a female suspect, and they decided the burglary theory was wrong, and they would have to start over from the beginning. Finally, two detectives willing to do their jobs. All of that totally sounds staged. Ah, uh, yes. There are those good apples I keep hearing about exist in the PD. At least a few exist. The real <laughs> test will be if they actually look into Stephanie as a suspect. Well, from the four binders of the case files, they developed a list of four female suspects. So Jim called to update the family about these new suspects, and was shocked when Nels and John both told him over the phone about the fifth suspect, a police officer named Stephanie Lazarus. By then, Stephanie had been promoted to a higher level of detective, and was working art theft cases directly across the hall from their own office. Since she was still with the department, Jim and Pete realized they had to proceed carefully. Still, they ring Stephanie as the least likely of the five suspects. However, their investigation soon eliminated all but one of the other women. The other woman, a former co-worker of Sherry's, had had some issues with her, but she was eliminated by secretly collecting DNA samples. With only Stephanie left, they kept their investigation a closely guarded secret. Not only did her husband also work in the commercial crimes division as a detective, she may have other friends who could tip her off. If she was the killer, she could disappear on them, but if she wasn't, then they would unintentionally smear a fellow officer who had an unblemished service record with no disciplinary investigations or civilian complaints. They only referred to her as number five, worked on the case after hours and behind closed doors. They even developed cover stories to explain why they wanted to look at personal records for one particular officer from 20 years ago. They trusted no one until they were sure. Geez, that would be so nerve-wracking. 
to be working a murder case and realize one of the suspects works directly across the hall. I don't blame them for only referring to her as number five. You don't want a murderer to overhear your conversation about them. I applaud them for being able to be so discreet. We all know how quickly office gossip travels. Seriously impressive. What else did they find on her? They began looking into other aspects of Stephanie's life during the mid-1980s. They recalled at that time that most LAPD officers had preferred a 38 as their backup or off-duty gun. State and Department records showed that she had indeed owned a Smith & Wesson Model 4938 at the time and had reported it stolen to the Santa Monica Police, but not to her own department, 13 days after the murder. Since the location where Stephanie had reported it stolen from was near a popular pier, they assumed she had thrown the gun into the Pacific Ocean. Lastly, a working patrol officer would know how to do just enough to make a crime scene look like an interrupted burglary to satisfy an overworked detective. Realizing that Stephanie was now their prime suspect, the detectives informed their superiors and arranged to discreetly collect a discarded DNA sample from her. Knowing they can get so without having to get a warrant, which would let Stephanie know that she was under investigation. While off-duty running errands, she threw away a cup she had been drinking from, which police immediately retrieved. A sample was taken from it and her DNA came back as a 100% match for that bite mark on Sherry's arm. All of this evidence had been available to the detectives back in 1986 if they had bothered to look at Stephanie. By now, the detectives were beginning to see a pattern in the evidence missing from the case file. It sure looked as if someone inside the department had been trying to protect her. Their theory wasn't that Sherry interrupted anything. It was that she was confronted by Stephanie upstairs after she had quietly entered through the unlocked front door. Two shots were fired at Sherry that were missed, shattering that sliding glass door. The glass was bowed slightly outward, consistent with rounds traveling in that direction. Stephanie had come looking for Sherry and had come to kill her. Sherry had apparently run downstairs, trying to reach the panic button on the security panel. Stephanie chased after her and stopped her before she got there. They fought for over an hour. Sherry apparently managed to briefly rustle the gun away and put Stephanie in a headlock. She then bit Sherry's arm to break free and picked up the heavy ceramic vase from the living room shelf and crashed it hard against Sherry's forehead. The blow was enough to daze Sherry, if not knock her to the floor. Stephanie then retrieved the gun, covered it with a blanket from the couch, and fired point-blank into Sherry's chest three times. That's brutal. It sounds like Sherry put up quite a fight and even got the upper hand at one point. It wasn't even the heat of the moment thing. It was completely premeditated. I think it all came down to one of them having a gun. It's one thing to be able to physically fight, but going up against a gun isn't easy for anyone. Yeah, they were evenly matched otherwise. How did they go about arresting a cop? Well, on the morning of June 5th in 2009, Stephanie reported to work for the LAPD administration building downtown. She had no idea that her arrest was already planned very carefully. That day, dozens of officers got up before dawn. After being briefed on a search warrant, they were told they would be executing outside of the city, but very few details beyond that, they went to wait near Stephanie's home in Simi Valley. A short time later, detectives from the Robbery and Homicide Division, who had been selected specifically for their lack of connection to Stephanie, called her from the lockup at Parker Center, the department's headquarters. That location had been selected, so Stephanie would have to surrender her gun in order to enter the building, limiting the possibility that she might resist violently when she was arrested. The detectives told her that she had someone in custody who wanted to talk to her about an art theft case she had been working on. 
After Stephanie had checked in her gun and entered the interrogation room, they explained that this was really about some loose ends they were trying to tie up in the Rasmussen case, since her name had come up in the investigation. They assured her that they only wanted a private setting because while John was an old boyfriend, they knew she was married to someone else in the department and they did not want her private life to become subject to office gossip. They knew they would have to tread carefully since she was well aware of police interview techniques and her rights to silence and legal counsel, which she could invoke at any time. The interview with Stephanie Lazarus was recorded on video. She has crazy eyes, man. She's clearly nervous and is probably one of the worst actors ever. It's a little over an hour long, and if you're interested, you can find a link to it on our website, crimeandconjure.com. I haven't gotten the chance to watch it, but based off everything we know about her, you don't have to convince me that she has crazy eyes. (laughs) It's a frustrating video to watch because she's so clearly lying and not well. You can sum it up, though. Yeah, so in the interview, they ramble from subject to subject sometimes discussing unrelated police business, but eventually they bring the conversation back to Sherry. Stephanie repeatedly claims that she can't remember anything because it was a million years ago. The entire interview, she maintains an exaggeratedly confused look on her face, as if she barely knows the people that they're talking about. After a long time of evading their questions, she accuses them of considering her a suspect. At that point, the detectives mentioned that they had DNA evidence from the crime scene and requested DNA samples from Stephanie. She declined and walked out of the room. She was immediately arrested by the detectives Jim and Pete waiting outside of the door. She was taken right back into the interrogation room and read her rights. Once she had been arrested, the police officers in Simi Valley began searching her home and car. In her house, they found her journal from the mid-1980s, with numerous mentions of her love for John and her depression over his engagement to Sherry. However, there isn't a single mention of her gun having been stolen. Her computer showed that she had searched the internet for John's name obsessively over several occasions during the late 1990s. Apparently, she still wasn't over him even after she married and had her own family. Many LAPD officers were stunned at the idea that Stephanie might have murdered someone. She had a reputation for being tenacious, tough, and strictly by the book. Everyone knew her and couldn't help but like her, despite her annoying perfection. She was usually chipper and fun, although some people referred to her as spazzerous behind her back because when she was angry, she could get a little crazy. Spazzerous? (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) She sounds plain old crazy. Who stays that obsessed with a college boyfriend? I don't think being called crazy by your friends and family is a good personality trait. (laughs) It at least should be a red flag. If they know she's crazy when she gets mad, why are they so surprised that she snapped? Anyway, tell me she lost her job and went to jail. After her arrest, she was allowed to retire early from the LAPD and was held in the Los Angeles County Jail for nearly six months until her bail hearing. Judge Robert J. Perry surprised both sides when he set the amount to $10 million in cash, well above what the defense had suggested and more than twice what the prosecutors had asked for. Her lawyer moved to have the entire case dismissed on the grounds that the initial investigators should have identified her as a suspect but failed to do so. The motion was denied and the trial was set to move forward. The trial began in early 2012. Prosecutors argued Stephanie's motives for the murder was jealousy over Sherry's relationship with John. The case the prosecutors had was very strong, especially with the DNA evidence against her. John testified on the stand about their relationship and how she acted after he and Sherry got engaged. 
The defense argued that she was not obsessed with John. He was just an old ex. They also attacked the DNA evidence procedure, claiming the evidence was lost for many years and the envelope was torn, meaning it could have been compromised or even tampered with. The case attracted considerable media attention. Many of its elements, a love triangle with a woman scorned, a cold case unsolved for over 20 years, and the accused killer turning out to be a police officer herself were straight out of a TV drama. In March, after several days of deliberations, Stephanie was convicted of first-degree murder. Later that month, she was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison, and she is currently serving her sentence at the California Institution for Women in Corona. After credit for time served before the trial, she will be eligible for parole in December of 2024. Good. When cops are being charged with a crime, you never really know which way it will go. They get let off so often. They get off 9 out of 10 times, especially if they're male cops. I'm glad Sherry got the justice she deserved, even if it was 20 years later. Better late than never. It still bothers me that Stephanie got to go about living her life happily like nothing ever happened. I'm assuming the family sued the LAPD. While two lawsuits had been filed based on the allegations that the LAPD actively covered up Stephanie's involvement in the murder, one by Nelson Loretta was dismissed due to statute of limitations. Basically, the events had happened too long ago. The other was a whistleblower suit by criminalist Jennifer Francis. It alleged misconduct in not only the Rasmussen case, but other high-profile investigations. She claimed that she and others suffered retaliation and harassment from superiors when they tried to accurately report the DNA results they found. Unfortunately, it ended with a judgment in the city's favor. Stephanie Lazarus filed a lengthy appeal of her conviction in May of 2013 with the California Court of Appeals. A panel of three judges heard the argument in the case in June of 2015. A month later, they reached a unanimous decision upholding Stephanie's conviction. Next, she sought review of a decision by the California Supreme Court, but it declined to hear her case at all. A murderer hid behind her badge for 23 years. The law enforcement system in this country made it more than easy for her to do so. Police officers are not above the law they are supposed to enforce. The blue wall of silence needs to be torn down once and for all. While Sherry finally got justice, I have no doubt that there are many more murderers and criminals still being protected by the badge. Something has to change. Color of Change is an organization that aims to help you do something real about injustice. Color of Change has challenged injustice and advanced solutions for racial justice that can transform our world. They have run campaigns that not only hold police accountable, but also change the rules and structures that allow them to escape any consequences. They are currently leading campaigns to take on the institution of policing head-on. That means getting to the root of the problem. To get involved yourself, go to colorofchange.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for the question of the week. Steph, what's our Conjure tip of the week? Today's tip is a simple banishing spell. If someone is bothering you, you just write the individual's name on a piece of paper. Burn the paper around the edges using a black candle. Black is associated with banishing. As you do so, focus on the intention that you're burning away whatever feelings they may have towards you. Animosity, jealousy, whatever. Burn as much of the paper as you can until all that's left is their name. 
Take that last bit of paper, dig a hole, and bury it. In some cases, they may still be around, but hopefully they'll stop bothering you. I'll help you feel less guilty if the feelings are mutual. (laughs) We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.